How much does chance play in our lives and what happens to us? How much does it play when it comes to our interaction with strangers or when we or others are the victims of seemingly sudden and random acts of violence? Sounds like the perfect time for episode 38 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture and I'll select a film from the more art classic side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your, wait, you want us to sell Amway? Host, Howard Kastner. For my listeners, please like, follow, or comment. Today, I'm happy to welcome back film enthusiast and podcaster of Cinema Recall, The Vern, who has chosen the dark comic riff on Pulp Fiction, the cult classic Go, where I have chosen Mikhail Haneke's Austrian art house classic, 71 Fragments of a Chronicle of Chance, two films about three disparate groups of people whose paths cross due to shocking acts of violence during the holidays. So, Merry Xmas, I guess. To begin, Vern, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? Well, hi, I am the Vern from the Cinema Recall podcast, which you can find on most other podcast player platforms. We are a movie review show, but we tend to focus on movies like cult cinema, popular movies. Mainly, we're trying to do themes for each month, like either a director or genre. In December, we did a whole tribute to director Brian De Palma, and we called it De Palma December. And then in February, we're going to do a uh, tribute to modern femme fatales. We have audio dramas on our website as well, which is cinemarecall.net. Howard has been a past guest talking about our favorite foreign films, and I would love to have him back on at a future date. And he also was in our episode talking about La La Land and the Umbrella Shortboard, so check that out as well. Great. It's had a great time, and yes, I would look very much forward to coming back again. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, Go. Go is an American film released in 1999, written by John August and directed by Doug Lyman. It stars William Fitchner, Desmond Askew, Scott Wolf, Jay Moore, Sarah Polly, Timothy Oliphant, Katie Holmes, Tay Diggs, Brecken Meyer, James Duvall, Melissa McCarthy, Jane Krakowski, and Princess Leia Lucky Buttons. Is that the cat? Yes, can't forget the cat. Okay. <laughs> the basic premise revolves around a drug deal told three times from three different points of view in which three groups of people find their lives intersecting in unexpected and often violent ways. Why did you choose this film? I picked Go just because I haven't seen it in a while. I do remember I did see it before in theaters a while back, but I like to look back at movies that I was very fond of in my youth to see if it still held up. I remember the soundtrack just being played everywhere. No doubt that song, Still My Sunshine from Len, was a really big hit as well. Because I do remember seeing this movie in theaters, and I watched it a bunch of times in my early 20s when it came out to DVD and video. I just wanted to see if it was still as fun as I remembered. Well, what did you think upon seeing it again? Like I mentioned before, I really enjoyed this movie when I was young. I liked the characters very much in this. Rewatching it this time, I still enjoy the movie. I have a lot of fun with it, but I can't say it's actually all that good. The second film made by Doug Lyman, whose first movie was Swingers. 
he's the kind of director that never actually has a style to him. He's that director for hire. He also directed the Born Identity and that Tom Cruise one, Live, Die, Repeat. Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. Thank you very much. Right. And I know a lot of people want to compare Go to be like a Pulp Fiction knockoff, which is kind of a shame just because Go happened to come out after Pulp Fiction. There's been other movies with three storylines where other characters have interacted with other characters from previous stories. But Pulp Fiction was such ingrained into the culture that when Go was released in 99, everyone just kind of called it a Pulp Fiction ripoff in a way. That's a little bit unfair. I do think it takes elements of Pulp Fiction, but not that geniusly. It's just three stories where different characters interact, but it's nothing trying to be anything more than that. I do know this started off as a short film with Rona character played by Sarah Pauly that John Argus wrote, and then it got expanded out into a feature. The strong point of this movie is that first story with Rona. The other two stories, they're okay, but they really could have been trimmed down. Some of the characters could have easily been removed, and you would still have the same type of story. Like, all the characters would still blend together just fine. Long story short, we watched it again. I enjoyed it, but it was definitely more of a nostalgic feel for it. And there's certain points of this that are really great, and I enjoy them. And other parts, I just felt like it just kind of slowed the story down and it could have been removed. Like you, I saw it when it first came out. I also thought it was a lot of fun. In fact, I think I saw it a second time not long after it came out. Yeah, I remember buying the VHS and the DVD when it was on sale right away. In many ways, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I do think I like it still a bit more than you do. I think you make some very good points, though, in that it's very well written, it's very well done, but it doesn't really do more than what it is. It's just a very entertaining picture. So that whole section with Rana, Sarah Paul's character, who's short on rent, she's about to be evicted. She takes a shift from her co-worker Simon so that he can go to Vegas. While there, she meets these two guys looking to find the Simon. She says, I'll find a way to get drugs for you. She goes to Todd, which is Simon's drug dealer. I think Timmy Oliphant and Sir Pauly are both really, really good in this movie, as well as William Fitcher. Uh, we'll get into those later on. After she gets those drugs for him and she tries to make a deal with the cops, she knows that they're cops and she's going to be busted for something. So she flushes the drugs down the toilet and then her and her friend Manny get like, out these allergy pills and cold medicine and decide to sell that stuff instead. The drug dealer, Timmy Olyphant's character, finds out about what happened, and he goes to hunt her down, and she gets hit by a car. Well, that whole sequence that I just described, that was just one story. That was the short story, Rona. Then he had to go into the whole Simon thing, his quest in Vegas. And I hate the fact that they had to add in other characters for no other reason. Like the Tate Ditch character, he could have been in there just fine, but not the other two guys. I felt the other two guys were just not really needed. I do like the third story with Scott Wolf and Jay Moore's character, especially when they visit the cop. In the story, Jay Moore and Scott Wolf are actors who have right. been busted for drug possession. So they make a deal with a cop played by William Fitchner to try to entrap another dealer. So William Fitchner, after the deal gets botched, he 
he invites both Scott Wolf and Jay Moore's character over to his house for a early Christmas dinner with his wife. Played wonderfully. I didn't even recognize her. Jane Krakowski. I love the fact that both Jane Krakowski's character is flirting heavily with Scott Wolf's character. And Will Fitchner seems to be flirting with Jane Moore's character. When they're at dinner, it seems that they're going to invite them in for like a sexual four-way, mm-hmm. but it turns out they're just on Amway. Well, it's not Amway, as he carefully points out. Oh, sorry. It's Confederated Products. It's confederated Products, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I felt that moment should have been enhanced more, but mm-hmm. the third story should have been expanded out just a little bit more. I like a lot of the things that you like about the movie. I like the Vegas bit a little more. I think you're right. One of the problems is that it takes too long to get them back to Los Angeles. Yeah. So most of the story really has nothing to do with Rona. It has nothing to do with the two actors. There are some aspects of it I do like. I like when the guy drives down the car and tosses his keys to the black character, assuming that because he's black, he's going to park the car. Yeah. Instead, they steal the car, which made perfect sense to me. He just gave us these car keys. Mm-hmm. Why not? But I well, think yeah. you do have a point that this section is a little long. The whole three-way between Simon and the two girls could have easily been cut out. Right. It just had nothing to do with anything except for a little funny sight aid to the room being on fire. And it's got a great song by Air. I love the soundtrack of this movie very much that I want to find it on vinyl. This is one of those movies that has an excellent selection of pop songs. Yeah. It reminded me of Dumb and Dumber and that Dumb and Dumber also has this incredible collection. That's right. Of pop songs. Put that so on, put the Dumb well and Dumber selected. soundtrack and go and you have a great 90s soundtrack. <laughs> I also love certain aspects of the two actors, Adam and Zach, yep. who are closeted soap opera actors. They, yes. They're lovers in real life and live together. I love the scene in the car when one reveals that he knows that his partner is cheating on him because he found socks that didn't belong to him in the dresser. And the subtext of that, where they're both beginning to realize that each of them have been cheating on the other, but everybody else in the car thinks they're talking about the women in their life. Yes. <laughs> I thought that was very cleverly written. I do love the Amway scene where he says, you want us to sell Amway? And he's, and he's very hurt. Yeah. Fitchner is quite <laughs> hurt. Yeah, they think this I love the Macarena scene. I do too. That kind of reminded me of Band of Outsiders. Right. Like a random dance number that didn't need to be in there at all. It's very kind of like 90s take on French New Wave. Yes, that's very, very true. Sometimes I wish more filmmakers would realize how a dance number can somehow bring something to a film. Shakespeare knew because in all his comedies, at some point they stop and have some sort of dance number and song. Somehow music can help a story trend send it. And I think you also make a good point about the director. I think it is a movie that is better written than directed. It's not badly directed. But I think you're right in that Doug Lyman doesn't really have a particular style. He's yeah. a very solid director. He gets the job done. His films look very good. But I don't think it's going to go down in the pantheon of great filmmakers who made their mark. Yeah, because you can't watch any of his movies. You can't really tell one apart from the other. And that's fine. Maybe he's that type of director who only just wants to do what's on the script and just make sure that the storyline is told the best way. You couldn't shoot Go the same way he did The Born Identity or even Sweeners or Mr. and Mrs. Smith. 
I think the performances are good. I think Sarah Pauly, uh, I've only seen her in this, in The Sweet Her After, and Dawn of the Dead were the only acting experiences that I've seen from her. Then she went on to become a really good director with, I think, Away From Her. That was her first film. Yeah. So and she I, did a documentary about her family, and then she did another film. Stories We Tell, Take This Waltz, Michelle Williams, Seth Rogen. That is one of the interesting things about the film because you're watching it and you constantly say, oh, I know that actor, I know that actor, I know that actor. A lot of them became much bigger. A lot of them had very solid careers. Yeah. Some didn't quite go anywhere. Melissa Williams did. I mean, she had a very well, small role. No, Melissa McCarthy. Melissa McCarthy. I didn't, of course, knew who Melissa McCarthy was when I first saw the film, so I didn't think anything of it. And then I watch it again last week, and I go, is, wait, is that is that Melissa McCarthy? That's Melissa McCarthy. And that's one of the fun things about seeing films like this again. Jay Moore and Scott Wolf's career didn't really go as strongly as the others did. They tried to make a movie star out of Scott Wolf, and it didn't really work. And Jay Moore had this wonderful TV series called Action. Oh, yeah, had, I remember that. It had a great first season. And the first season was, oh, they were trying it out, see if they wanted to do any more with it. And it was so successful. And he played such a horrendously awful but fascinating character. He plays her a Hollywood producer. When they brought it back for the second season, something was lost. It just wasn't working. And it only lasted that season. He gets work constantly like Scott Wolf does, but it hasn't been like Timothy Oliphant, who now has a very successful television show, or Tay Diggs, who does very well, or Sarah Polly, who has become a very appreciated and recognized film director. Even more so that guy who played Simon, Desmond Asdew, he hasn't really done much stuff either, except for some video game roles and some TV show appearances. Katie Holmes is best known now as being the ex-Mrs. Tom Cruise. Yeah. And Jane Krakowski, though, has gone on to have two very successful television series. Oh, with 30 Rock, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And I know that John August... I know he did a movie called The Nines. He also wrote Big Fish. He was a right. writer for Franklin Weenie. He did a lot of work with Tim Burton. I guess he was one of the writers of the remake of Aladdin. And Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and, Corpse yep. Bride. Go was his very first screenplay that he did. And Doug Lyman was hired because they saw Swingers and thought that was the right approach they needed for the film. The Swingers was a big hit in the 90s. That was a big Lyman. surprise hit. That yeah, it was. made a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And started yeah. the film career of both John Favreau and Vince Vaughn. You do mention, and we should talk about it. it, it is compared to Pulp Fiction. When Pulp Fiction came out, it was felt to be something very, very new. And in some ways it was. There have been other films with interlocking storylines. But Pulp Fiction was very postmodern. It was a very much paid tribute to a movie that had come before. It reveled in pop culture. It loved pop culture. And it was a huge hit. People thought there was something new here. When I was reading screenplays for contests and such, after Pulp Fiction came out, there were a lot of screenplays that had the same basic structure as Pulp Fiction, where people were having these interlocking, three interlocking, sometimes more stories that came together at certain points. And a lot of them were very, very good. And I think Go is one of the best examples of that, of taking the Pulp Fiction structure and using it in a very successful way. I think it owes a lot to Pulp Fiction, but I think you're right. It is its own thing at the same time. It's a bit lighter. It's more fun than Pulp Fiction. It's not quite as serious. But without Pulp Fiction, it's hard to say whether Go would ever have been made. Once Pulp Fiction got made, it gave permission to producers to actually do these screenplays 
with these kind of interlocking story structures that quite possibly they just never would have done before because they would just say, well, you can't do this. This isn't the way you screenplay. This is breaking all the rules. You just can't do it. I can see that. I can totally see how producers wouldn't be able to greenlight this movie without the success of Pulp Fiction. I just see every time everyone I read review about this movie, everyone always has to mention Pulp Fiction. Just because the movie has three storylines with characters that interact I think one might say that in the end, Go is a film that doesn't really do anything, but it does it rather well. It does it very well. And it has gotten a cult following. Oh, very much so. My friends still enjoy it very much. I enjoy it as well, and I will probably will watch the movie again, too. I think it's a very fun movie. I do think that the performances all around are really good. The strong points for me are probably William Fishner. Sarah Pauly, Jane Krasowski, and Timothy Oliphant. I like the atmosphere. I love the musical score by BT. I love all the set design. I love the fact that they have Christmas lights in the car. This is set at Christmas time. And yes. you don't really think of this as being a Christmas movie. I don't necessarily consider it a Christmas movie. It's what is often now termed, because you know people can't agree whether Die Hard is Christmas. So now they have this term. It's a Christmas adjacent movie. It's uh, not about Christmas, but it takes place during Christmas. I think Die Hard has a lot more Christmas references than <laughs> Go. It's mostly in the background. There's the scene where the two girls are painting a tree mm-hmm. on Manny's stomach. There's a big Santa dancing statue at the Mary Etzmas Superfest party so yeah there's christmas elements in this one but that's about it that's not a complaint about it it's a fine little addition to it i like that visual aesthetic of it but yeah yeah i think for me it's a movie that if you're want to be entertained if you want to be put in a good mood you're a little down you know watch it you'll feel better it won't change your world it's not going to be listed on sight and sound or here's to cinema at any time in the future but it's very entertaining it's just very very enjoyable I do expect a Criterion release for this movie, but I do expect maybe like a 30-year anniversary special edition. Well, with that, here's some more information about the movie. The film grossed $28.5 million worldwide against a $20 million budget. So nice. it made a modest profit. Nothing great, but it didn't really lose money. And it has become a cult favorite since then. As you say, John August originally wrote the portion of the story involving Rana as a short film titled X. And it's inspired by the Rock and Roll Ralph's grocery store on Sunset Boulevard. And then when people started asking him about other characters in the short script, Simon and the trip to Vegas, and then Adam and Zach. Then he wrote the two more parts and connected them together. The director picked the grocery store that the movie was filmed in because it was run down. But when the producers paid the owner of the supermarket for permission to film there, the owners took the money and repainted and repaired the store to make it look like Hollywood. Oh, no. Oh, no. So the the director and the producers, you know, they weren't quite happy with this since they picked the store because of how it looked run down. After getting consent from the store, they had her crew to bring the store back to what it had looked like before. So the finished products is what you see in the film. The license plate 2GAT123, which appears in this film, also appears in Beverly Hills Cop 2, Traffic, Pay It Forward, Mulholland Drive, Crazy Beautiful, L.A. Story, Two and a Half Men, and SWAT. We were talking about the television show Action with Jay Moore, where he played a ruthless and amoral and almost sociopathic producer. All of that description may be redundant. But Adam Scott made a cameo appearance in the second season where he's trying to get Jay Moore to give him a job. And oh, really? It's very funny. Yes, it's very funny. It's one oh. of the highlights of the second season. And this was Melissa McCarthy's film debut. 
Well, with that, let's get to my selection, and that is 71 Fragments of a Chronicle of Chance. First, some information about the film. 71 Fragments of a Chronicle of Chance is a 1994 Austrian film written and directed by Mikhail Haneke, or Mikhail Haneke. It stars Gabriel Kosman Erdes, Lucas Miko, Otto Grunmandel, Anne Bennett, Udo Samuel, Franco Zamorowski, Claudia Martini, George Friedrich, Alexander Schill, Klaus Handel, Karina Eder, and Sebastian Stan. And I probably got most of those names incorrect. <laughs> you did much better than I did, man. The story dramatizes a series of 71 scenes that follow several different characters and unrelated groups of people who all meet up at a shocking act of violence at an Austrian bank. So what do you think of the pairing of the two films? Oh, boy. Okay, this was difficult for me to really wrap my head around. I understand about people beaten by chance. It just took a while for things to be connected with this movie. You're getting a bunch of separate stories that are split up with scenes. And I actually had to start writing this stuff down here so I can actually keep track of what's happening. And that's what made things difficult. So I understand that. For example, uh, you get this text about a kid shooting people and then shooting himself. This takes place in 1994. So you get news footage of activists fighting and all the things that are happening in the Middle East. Then we see this kid jumps on the back of a moving truck. And then we have a credit sequence begin. Pretty lengthy credit sequence of just a truck traveling across the border. Next scene, a guy breaks into a mailbox and other places in an apartment building. Next scene, we see a couple with this baby. Then we see another story with a homeless kid. We get another story about a parents adopting a new kid that seems to be shy. There's this kid in college who can't seem to do a puzzle right. There's an old guy who watches news while eating breakfast. Most of the time, the characters in this don't seem to collide with each other until it seems to be the very end. I tend to think of this movie, and I'm trying to mess up his name. I apologize, Mikkel Haneke. I think Mikkel Haneke was making a statement when he puts in the news footage to be like, look, these are the horrible things that are happening around the Middle East here. And here's like a small news story about this murder that happened by showing just the mundane things that happen. Some things that can't be explained. Why do people do this? There really is no explanation for this. The same way of violence breaking out in the Middle East, not really much of an explanation. There's even portions of the Michael Jackson trial too. That's my best way of trying to understand the storyline. Just these fragments of people's lives that seem very insignificant led to other things. You're certainly right in one of the major differences between the structures of the two films is that in Go, the stories tend to cross on a somewhat regular basis. Here, you're right. The people who get killed at the bank and the shooter never meet until they get to the bank. Mm -hmm. And this is just following these characters. If you didn't have that text at the very beginning, which said that there was a mass shooting of the bank on this date, I probably would have been bored out of my head because I'm going, where's this going? I don't know why I'm watching all of this. But you know that all of these fragments are going to somehow end up at this bank and some of these people are going to be shot. You don't know which ones they are and you don't know why it's these people, but they do only meet at the very end and they don't even meet. They don't know each other. True. And they don't interact. Yeah. Uh, This was your first time for seeing the film, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I'm familiar with a few of Michael Haneke's works. I've seen Caché, The White Ribbon. I've seen him more. I have seen Funny Games. I know about Dal 
Miles, I know that he always tries to do, at least with a lot of his earlier stuff, tries to do a shotgun ending that seems to like pull the word off from you. And I know that this was part of a trilogy that includes Benny's video. Right. As well as another. The Seventh Continent, Glacation Trilogy. So it's the third part as you hear. So I feel like I should watch the other ones. I know like Benny's video was mentioned a lot when I saw interviews with him about funny games. This one was kind of tough to sit through. I'm not going to lie. I do agree with you, too. If I didn't have that test about the shooting that happened, I would be like, start like you, like, well, what is going on here? Why am I just seeing portions of a story? Why can't I see the whole entire story about the homeless kid? And then go to the whole entire story about the couple with a shy orphan. And then go to the whole story about the college students as well. Why am I seeing these things? But it's called Freedom of Life, and that's what life is. It's just these series of moments. That's why we had, like, this 10-minute conversation with the older guy talking to his daughter who seems to be upset with her i didn't understand why the story about the old guy was there his daughter worked at the bank that's what it was okay and okay. then he's one of the ones who was shot that's true okay okay i mean we presume that we they don't exactly tell us which of the three people that are shot but yeah, it's obviously it, it's him the woman who wants to adopt the child and then the guard who is having difficulties with his wife yeah, so it just showed fragments of it's a chronological chance. They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. When I was watching this, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Irreversible, the Gaspar Noe film. Mm-hmm. How the character that Monica Bellucci plays was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, same thing with his characters. They're just running their errands and they had no idea that this random act of violence was going to take place. In fact, right. it could be called random act of violence. And <laughs> I would have been much more appreciated of that. It's good. I think this is a story that could easily have been told in a shorter time, maybe an hour or so. I don't see the need to have like a whole hour and 20 minutes. I know Haneke likes to play around with audiences' expectations. He did it with Funny Games. Mm-hmm. He did it with Cachet. A little bit with White Ribbon. And why I do appreciate that element of his work, it also can be very frustrating as well. Not one of my favorites of his, but I still like the man as a director very much. I can't remember when I saw it. It was after, I'm sure, Funny Games and Cachet, maybe after Code Unknown. And I've seen every film of his since 71 oh, uh, nice. Fragments, except for the American version of Funny Games. It oh, got really? Some reviews. And I wasn't a big fan of the Austrian version of Funny Games. It's one of the things that really made him big yeah. outside of Austria in the U.S. I gave my parents Funny Games for my mom's birthday, and mm-hmm. she loved it. She loved it very much, because I know they're not a big fan of foreign films, right. but they like the American conversion very much it's like a shot for shot remake basically that he did that story for another time but i, I like the american version mm-hmm. i like the austrian version a little bit more funny games for me he's my favorite director of his generation for me it was him and pedro amaldivar who were the two best filmmakers starting in the 90s then along in america with quentin tarantino i like 71 fragments a lot more than you do i found it quite fascinating and quite interesting even though at times it's a little hard to follow it's a little hard to understand what's going on and i like his style i like his approach i have certain problems with his films but i think cachet code unknown 
Hour of the Wolf, Amour, are just incredibly wonderful, powerful movies. And he has a very distinctive style. One of the things that he does that I find fascinating can be seen in one of my favorite scenes, and that's the ping pong scene, where the college student is practicing ping pong. Okay, explain this to me. Well, it just goes on and on and on yeah. and on and on. And on. Okay. But what did you like about this? I just found it fascinating that it was going on and on and on and on. Last week, in my last podcast, we were talking about Andrei Tarkovsky and his film Stalker. I read a quote of Tarkovsky's that I think applies here and why this scene works for me. And he said that if the regular length of the shot is increased, one becomes bored. But if you keep on making it longer, it piques your interest. And if you make it even longer, a new quality emerges, a special intensity of attention. And he does that, not just in this scene, he does this in other scenes too, where things tend to go on not just a little longer than they should, they just go on very long. Yeah. And it becomes, for me, quite intriguing and captivating. And funny enough, there is an American television show that does this, and I think does it just as well. And that is Family Guy. For example, there's a scene where the lead in Family Guy, he's running down a street, he trips and falls, and he injures his leg, and he keeps pulling it to him and moaning. And it goes on and on and on. That's a very interesting comparison. Sometimes I wonder if this is supposed to be some sort of allusion to Haneke. It's also things like the chicken fight in Family Guy, which goes on way too long. But it goes on for so long (laughs) that it becomes hypnotic and fatty. I never thought I would hear a comparison between Michael Haneke movie and Family Guy. That's what this show is for. <laughs> I love that. And you're right, certain shots of that shot near the end where it shows the victims of the shooting and the blood slowly right. seeping out. The shot just stays on there for what seems like a really long time. You're probably right, too, to take on a new aesthetic because you start to become anxious about it. But the same time, too, I'm thinking, all right, let's get to this story. There's other stories here. Let's wrap up this other story stuff there I certainly wouldn't want every director to do that no, <laughs> that no, no. Sure. but i think it is part of his aesthetic and he does get away with it i do have some issues with haneke and it's often when he starts talking about his movies and what he's trying to do with them every time he starts talking about them for some reason i like him less so i'd rather not hear him talk about his movie but what i like about his movies the strongest aspects are the existential aspects because in so many of his movies things happen and he never explains We don't know why this guy got so upset that he went in and shot all these people in the bank. Yeah, that's one thing I appreciated about the movie. I knew when he bought the gun that he was going to be the one to shoot everyone. But we never find out why. Exactly, we never found out why. But in Cachet, we never exactly find out who was sending these videos or exactly why. In Code Unknown, there's a lot going on that's a little unclear. In Hour of the Wolf, something has happened to the world, but we don't know what it is. In The White Ribbon, there's something going on in this small Austrian town, and it's never explained because it's based on a real incident where they never did find out what was happening here. And in Funny Games, they're psychopaths. They don't actually have a reason to do what they're doing. And when Haneke is focusing on the existentialism of that we have to live in a world sometimes where things don't make sense, that I can go for. But when he starts saying things like, my films are intended as polemical statements against the American barrel-down cinema and its disempowerment of the spectator. 
They are an appeal for a cinema of insistent questions instead of false because too quick answers for clarifying distance in place of violating closeness, provocation and dialogue instead of consumption and consensus. He's saying that he does all these things and he doesn't give an answer because all he wants to do is ask questions. It's hard for me to explain what it is that bothers me about it. He says that he's not passing judgment on people. He's just recording people normally. And I'm going, no, you're actually passing judgment. These are not very likable people. And you've purposely made them where they're not particularly likable. So you are actually passing judgment on it. When he makes the piano teacher, he is really, really incredibly mean and bullish to I, that central character. I totally forgot I did that movie. That's another one I've seen of his. Isabel Huppert is brilliant, but I'm going, why are you being so incredibly insensitive and mean to this character? Everything you're saying about her that makes her a bad person is what you're doing to her yourself. And when he talks about Hollywood films and American films providing these easy answers and that he, and creating violence for consumption so that we're desensitized to it and that it's all manipulation. I'm going, your films are nothing but manipulation and you manipulate with violence as well. So I get the feeling that things that he accuses all these American films of doing, he's doing as well. And he's being very smug about it and saying, oh, no, no, I'm not doing it. And I'm going, yeah, 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 you really are. And you're just smug and morally superior (laughs) about it. I tend to agree too. I like people's own interpretations of Hannah Day's films more than him explaining the films himself. With Funny Games, I got that was satire or a expose on American horror films and the use of violence in that movie. That's why in Funny Games, you never actually see the violence. All the violence is just done off screen. I think he's trying to say, hey, look, I know you want to see this horrible violence right there because you're a violence-loving culture, but I'm not going to show you the violence. You want the hero to survive at the end? Nope, not going to happen for you either. The filmmaker is always manipulating the audience, and here's a movie that just shows very much how a film can manipulate people. And I love playing funny games for friends that have never seen it before, just to see them get really upset at the end. And maybe that's like the sadist in me, just being a bad practical joker. I do find there's something else in there as well. And if I do watch the 71 Fragrance movie again, which I probably will, I'll probably find more things about it that I didn't appreciate before. I know the first time I saw Funny Games, I was like, what the hell is this? That is just a bullshit ending. But the more I rewatched it and analyzed it, I'm starting to pick apart why it was done this way. Like, why do you think he decided to tell a story of just showing just one scene at a time instead of all one story? I'm not sure I can give you an explanation sure. for it. I think he's saying that this is what life is like. Sure. Like it's just made up of fragments that so seem to be really connected, mm-hmm. but then sometimes are. And when they are connected, we don't really have an, a good explanation as to why. Yeah, the horrible things happen. We are not ever really sure why it happens. But there's also, as much as tragedy that happened, there was also very beautiful things that do happen. I do like the scene with the young boy who's topping movements with another kid. Who is Sebastian Stan? Who would have known? It's like Melissa McCarthy. I've read that Sebastian Stan had a really bad time on the making of this movie, and he was like going to give up acting forever. For I don't being think it was because of the experience of making the movie or working with Michael Haneke. He was just doing it and realized, I don't like making movies. Yeah. And it took him, yes, a long time. He didn't make another movie after this. He moved to America and then started doing plays in high school and discovered that he actually did like it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he just did not like making 
making a movie. A movie. Fair enough. There's so yeah. nothing to do with Haneke. Okay. Fair right. enough. Right. I jumped the gun. Sorry, Michael Haneke. It's not your yeah. fault. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's my understanding. I like a lot of the things you said about Michael Haneke and what he tries to do with his films, his approach to violence and things of that nature. I think my problem is when I feel like he thinks that makes him morally superior to all these other filmmakers. That's fair. I totally 100% respect that feeling too. That's why I don't try to watch too many movies with this commentaries. I like watching other critics like yourself analyze right. his movies more than him try to analyze his movies. Because if I heard that, I'm like, nah, nah you're, you're trying to become pompous and I don't want to hear it. It is interesting. This movie came out in 1994. Yep. That was the same year Pulp Fiction came out. Yes. And obviously, neither one would have seen the other one. It would have been impossible for them to know about each other's films but they do have the same kind of structure in which there are these stories going on and they intersect but where i would think that haneke would really hate pulp fiction because it glamorizes violence because it is it's very postmodern it's very pop culture it revels in these kind of movies that did glorify violence i'm sure he i haven't read but I can't imagine that he would have liked Pulp Fiction, but it's not a better movie than Pulp Fiction. For me, as much as I like 71 Fragments, Pulp Fiction is a better movie. And it may have all the faults that Haneke hates about American films. It's still a better movie than 71 Fragments. Yeah, very much so. But at the same time, I want to see other filmmakers try this stuff. Wasn't there a movie called The Fragments of Tracy with Ellen Page? It tried like encapsulates uh, that style. And it's not that original. And you can go back to the 1930s and you have all star films like grand hotel and dinner at eight which have three four five different storylines all of which interconnect and all meet up together at the very end so sometimes i also think that michael haneke is like oh i'm doing something that's so incredibly original and i'm going you're not you're a great filmmaker (laughs) but you're not doing anything all that original the structure can be traced back to the 1930s or even to charles dickens who has an incredibly large number of subplots going on that all meet together. He breaks the fourth wall. Well, so did Lady in the Lake. So did Woody Allen and Annie Hall. Breathless. Yeah. He wants you to never forget that you're in a movie. Well, Jean-Luc Godard did that long before you came on the scene. So you're not really doing anything that original. You're a brilliant filmmaker. So, Howard, should we just have him make movies but not allow to go on any press tours? Yes, maybe. For me, I'm not sure most people would agree with that. I'm sure a lot of people to listen to me say this would say, oh, you're full of it. That's just crap. And that may be. But I do want to note that in spite of that, he is still perhaps the greatest filmmaker so far of the 21st century and certainly one of the greatest, if not the greatest, in Europe. With that, here's some more information about the film. Some of it we've mentioned before. This is the third part of Mikhail Haneke's Glacian trilogy, which includes The Seventh Continent and Benny's Video. And we did mention Sebastian Stan is the kid in the subway who interacts with the teen who has snuck into the country. They're across the subway from each other. And he is now better known, perhaps, as Bucky Barnes in the Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Udo Samal, a couple of years later, had the lead and if you haven't seen this film, people, you have to see it. It's a German film. He plays a gay police detective from New York, takes place in New York, who is, though it's a German film, who is trying to stop a killer condom in the movie <laughs> of the same name. For 1966, it's called The Killer Condom. I've seen it twice. If you can find it anywhere, see it. It's really quite something. Oh, this also amazing. can be seen recently in the TV series Babylon Berlin. 
And I have to finish this off with a story that Mikhail Haneke tells. And this is one story I really like of his. I couldn't really find it again, so I can't find the interview that it was in. But when he did Funny Games, and Funny Games really brought him the attention outside of Europe, and it brought him to Hollywood, where, as they often do, if you're a foreign filmmaker who makes a very successful film, whether artistically or financially, you'll have to pay for that sin by Hollywood trying to get you to come to the U.S. to make a movie, sometimes completely destroying your career. He was brought to the U.S. to see about making films here. And he said that he was with one producer who opened the bottom drawer of his desk and took out this screenplay and put it on the desk and said, would you be interested in doing this without any thought as to whether Haneke would be in any way an appropriate filmmaker for this film? And my recollection for some reason that it was a Pearl Harbor story. And Haneke said, is this what American filmmaking is like? That they just give you some screenplay that they have lying in the bottom drawer of their desk and just say, would you be interested in doing this film? Naturally, he turned down all of them and he eventually did an American version of Funny Games. In closing out, is there anything else you might want to say about Go or 71 Fragments of a Chronicle of Chance or both films together? I think that I saw my thoughts about Go. I do think that it's a very fun movie, lighthearted to watch. You don't have to put much thought into it at all. 71 Fragments, it is a little bit of a chore. It's an art film. It's very much an art film. I'm not trying to dismiss that because of it, though. I, I like the concept of the film and how it was done. In closing out, I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. I have a couple here. I wanted to talk about three early films from Alejandro Aratu with mm-hmm. Amors Peros, right. 21 Grams, and Babel. Those movies all have nonlinear storylines. Also, The Tracy Fragments also mm-hmm. kind of does things in a very much nonlinear. But yeah, those are my other ones. Great. Well, I'm choosing three films. The first one is 2001's 13 Conversations About One Thing, written by Karen Sprecher and directed by Jill Sprecher. And it's about a group of people in New York who find their lives intersecting. And Alan Arkin gives a wonderful performance in the film. And there's a film called 1114, and that's the time. It's 14 minutes after 11. Uh, Writer, director, Greg Marks, 2003 drama. And it's about the events leading up to a car crash. And it's told from five different perspectives. And then I will finish on Nashville which is Robert Altman's 1975 ensemble film in which a huge number of people have their lives intersecting as they converge on the city of country Western music and it climaxes with a shocking act of violence. So what is next? What should we be looking for from you? What's going on? For uh, Cinema Recall, a couple things are in the works. I do know that in the month of January, I'm releasing a bunch of episodes that were bonus shows on our Patreon page, which I'm moving over to our main page. I'm getting my uh, guest list put together for episodes in February. I'm having on my good friend, the host of site called Filmotomy. She's known on Twitter at Style Island, but she's going to talk with me about the movie Basic Instinct. And I'm going to have co-host of the Whatever with Jason Soto podcast, Mary Mitchell, talking about Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon for another episode happening in February. I'm hoping to have my friend Donnie Roberts of the Cage's Kiss podcast talk to with me about Battle Royale. So that's what I have for right now. Well, great. As for me, I'll go through my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and screenplay consultant. So I have a Howard Kastner Facebook screenplay consultation page. 
I have a blog called Rantings and Ravings, where I talk about issues concerning movies and screenwritings. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One Crew Religion. And these are sci-fi, supernatural, and horror short stories. I published the second edition of my screenwriting book, or Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. And I'm an amateur photographer, and you can find those photos on Instagram. The previous podcast was with writer-director-actor Gustavo A. Garzon, where we discussed Annihilation and Stalker, which are two films about aliens coming to Earth in some form and creating a zone cut off from the rest of the world. The next episode will be with actor Charlie Rossman, where we will discuss Superbad and American Graffiti. The first about the last day of high school, the second about the last day of summer following the last day of high school. So with that, once more, Vern, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on the show. Well, thank you very much. Uh, can I tell listeners where to find us? Yes, where can we find you? Uh, cinemarecall.net is the best place to find out. All of our episodes have links to our Patreon page, where you can listen to us and past episodes. That's the best way. Oh, great. Well, thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you so much, Howard.